at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, and for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Thus far is God's holy word. Let's ask him, ask him to enlarge it in our hearts and minds as he talks to us today. Let's pray. Gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the way you work uh, in the hearts and lives of your church and in your people. And even in this story that we read today of how the gospel broke a cultural boundary that had existed for millennia, that it's your work and it's your authentication and it's your direction that brings down walls, that establishes peace between nations. Truly, there's only peace to be found in you through the forgiveness of sins and through the reconciliation that comes by the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we read and talk about this story this morning, open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, that we might know your truth and your will for us, that we would be um, equipped to be your witnesses on the earth, just as we see your church witnessing you, that you would direct us to take the gospel to those around us to those who are far off, that we might be of the same culture as those who do not know you and can be at peace with you through the gospel. Help us be the messengers of love, peace, and grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we see the work of the Spirit in this passage, may that same Spirit teach us and instruct our hearts 
not only showing us what this passage means, but equipping and engaging our will to act on our beliefs. Teach us, we pray, Lord. Teach us by your Spirit. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so there's lots going on in this uh, chapter. Um, But let's start with this guy, Cornelius. He is the, uh, yeah, the the personal focus of, um, you know, he's the funnel uh, mouth through which the gospel is going to break out (laughs) through the Gentiles. So what do we learn about Cornelius in this chapter? And I like how Luke, notice how he three times we hear Cornelius' story of this angel. We hear it as, as Luke narrates it as it happens, and then we hear the um, these messengers that he sends to fetch Peter. They tell Peter, um, you know, give a, him a brief account of what happened to Cornelius, and then Cornelius tells Peter himself when Peter shows up. So three times we're given the story of Cornelius's um, encounter with um, variously described as an angel, a man in bright clothing. Uh, something that you know, Luke describes as terrifying <laughs> um, to Cornelius. So yeah, so let's let's just start with Cornelius. Um, yeah, what strikes you about this man? What do we learn about who he is? Kevin, um, not quite a Jew, but a, a Roman who's who's interested in Judaism. And that that phrase, God fearer. Um, is is kind of a technical label for someone who's interested in the Jewish God, but who themselves have not become Jewish. So he's not circumcised. Um, you know, he he's he's not described as a worshiper in the same sense that Ethiopian was described as. So he's someone who who he's Roman, um, and he is interested or are interested in Judaism and the God of Judaism um, without having become a Jew himself yet. So he is still, um, he's still a Gentile. The same centurion? Um, we don't know. Um, I mean, it, it indicates, so there, because there are lots of centurions. So, um, he is a centurion of what is known as the Italian cor- cohort. There would actually be six centurions in a cohort. So a cohort is six, a unit of 600 men. And so he would be one of the six centurions in that one single cohort. And then there would be anywhere from five to 10 cohorts in a legion. So there are gonna be lots of centurions running around. So we can't say for certain he's the same. Um, yeah, so Cornelius is a centurion. You know, he's one of many centurions in Israel. So we can't say for certain if he's the same centurion. Um, right. Yes. Um, but again, you know, so he's a Roman, and he's, he's a member of an, what's known as the Italian cohort. Um, so, you know, he, he's, he is a a Gentile in a position of power and authority. Um, and just, so he's a commander of a hundred men. 
So a centurion is, a, is an officer um, who has 100 men under him. Um, and then, you know, he's in a cohort which has a commander, and so there are six centurions, oh, you know, and then they have a commander over them, and then, you know, there are anywhere from five to ten cohorts in a legion, and then they have a commander over him. So, you know, he would be, I would say, probably about, well, a colonel, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, so he's a position of, a, yeah, it's a position of power and authority. So he's, um, yeah, so, and that's a good, good thing to note. So as, as we see this, this convert, he's, he's not just a run of, you know, run of the mill Gentile in Caesarea. Um, he is a man of power and authority and wealth in Caesarea. Um, and Caesarea is, Josephus says, it was mostly inhabited by Gentiles. So it's known as a Gentile city. Um, but, you know, Cornelius is a position of, of some power and authority in Caesarea. You know, he's got people over him. Um, but, you know, he also has lots of people under him. <laughs> um, good. What else um, about our friend Cornelius? Do we learn? So he's a Roman soldier who's interested in Judaism. He's a God-fearer. Yeah, that he's doing religious things, like he's giving alms, um, and he's praying. Um, and notice how that aspect of who he is is repeated. Um, you know, that's what the angel, when the angel appears and speaks to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Um, and then, you know, when he's telling um, Peter, you know, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. So, you know, we could see, like, even though clearly everything in this chapter is, is openly being directed by God. Like, we know God is sovereign over everything, but in this case, God is moving the chess pieces around the board <laughs> in a more obvious, open way. <laughs> like he's, he's directing events, you know, very openly um, by sending angels and visions. Um, it's not just the kind of incidental working through people that we see. Again, God's directing them and moving them. But in this, he's doing it very independently of human actors. But human action is still involved, and you know, Cornelius is is being singled out in a sense because God has heard and remembered his prayers and the alms he's done. Um, so, um, and God is um, remembering um, things. You know, he's heard these prayers. They haven't been unaffecting prayers that this Roman God-fearing. Um, Gentile has been doing. I thought I saw another hand. Yeah, Teresa. Yeah, he, he's seen, uh, you know, he's described as devout, God-fearing. No, you know, he hasn't yet converted to Judaism, so, you know, um, not sure what, you know, 
that's about. But he's willing to give alms, and he's willing to pray to the God of the Jews. Um, so um, a, a devout man, well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, we're told later on. So he's someone with a reputation of someone who, uh, you know, who's a Roman, but who is friendly and favorable to the Jews um, and has backed it up with, with money. <laughs> um, he hasn't just kind of given lip service to them, but he's actually given them financial support. Yeah, Rob? An alms? It's another way for, for gifts. Um, so alms are, yeah, giving money or giving goods to support uh, the work of, of ministry. So, yeah, Jay. Yeah, um, and Luke, and I've said this before, Luke and Acts puts great emphasis and, and, and notes the importance of prayer. Um, and this is one of those times, like, you know, we, we know we're, we're, we're instructed over and over to pray, and we pray as individuals, we pray as groups. It, it's not often we get to see the other side, like what happens to those prayers? And, uh, you know, sort of think, like, you know, when I think memorials, I think of the, the book of, of Joshua where, you know, every time something happens, they set up a set of stones. <laughs> like, they cross the Jordan, they pile up stones. Um, they almost have warfare with the other tribes across the river. They build an altar, um, not to worship on, but as a, a memorial, you know, as a, a thing. So you see it and you remember it. It's like, you know, the way you make notes to yourself and stick them on the refrigerator. <laughs> like, it's there so to help you to remember and to sort of think of our prayers being there before God that, you know, that he remembers. Like, not that he would forget us, but like, you know, to kind of, that's the kind of idea that's being created. They're not going out into the ether, into a vacuum, and like, they're not, you know, just words slipping out of our mouths and going nowhere. But God hears and remembers. Um, those prayers add up <laughs> to something. Um, yeah, Ronnie. I mean, if pray, yeah, I mean, I think here, it's, you know, he is sincerely praying, um, and, you know, he's told, your prayers, like the angel shows up and tells him, um, your prayers have been answered. <laughs> um, so, yeah, clearly God, uh, and, you know, I was talking about this in terms of, of Saul last week, like, 
you know, God working in people's lives. Like, he's hearing the gospel from Stephen, and he's persecuting the church. But he still heard the gospel from Stephen. Like, it's still there. That, he hasn't, like, that message he heard from Stephen hasn't gone away. It's offended him, um, and it's causing him to persecute the church. But when he's converted, he heard the gospel from Stephen. Like, and it's this, I think it's the same way. Like, um, God is working through means. Um, and in this case, he's working through the means of someone who has not yet had the, you know, received the gift of the Holy Spirit. He, you know, he, he hasn't been converted. But the same way, like, you know, like if God never hears the prayer of sinners, then how can anybody pray to be converted? Like, you know, <laughs> God's got to do something, <laughs> you know, like he's, uh, you know, he's, God's going to, God hears prayers. Um, now, the prayers of the saints obviously carry sanctified in the blood of Jesus and are, you know, are taking our groans, are being presented before the throne of God. But God's working in the life of someone who will be a believer um, even before he, he is converted. And um, I think I was telling Brian this last week, like, you know, I think about um, all the the things that people said and did. All the you know, I was raised Catholic. I went to the mass. I never saw the gospel in the mass until after I was converted. But then, you know, once I'm converted, I can go back and look and like, wow, the gospel's all over the place. Like, and you know, it was, you know, going over my head. I was blind to it. You know, hearing I didn't hear, seeing I didn't see. But once my eyes were open to it, like I think back all the times that they didn't mean anything to me at the moment, but they mean great to me now because I see how God was working in my life even before I became a believer, like long before, like things people said and did for me that, you know, didn't register at the moment. But once God, you know, did a work in my heart, I could go, you know, and open my eyes. I could go back and see all the ways that God was working through my life even before I believed. So I, I think I, we see that here, how God is working in Cornelius before Cornelius fully knows him. Um, good. Other things about Cornelius before we move on? Yeah. Um, there was with the Samaritans that there needed to be like this visible sign. But, you know, in this chapter, it kind of seems like they, like, like it doesn't say he knows about Jesus yet. Um, like, you know, it's, it's not till Peter shows up and preaches to him. And while he's preaching to him, he doesn't even get finished. <laughs> I mean, I love that. Like, while he's still speaking, like, you know, God does a work in their hearts. Um, but normally, belief and the spirit go together. Um, I would say in the example of the Samaritans, um, there just needed to be an apostle on the scene to kind of, and like we see here, this is a groundbreaking moment, um, and Peter's got to go back and tell the other apostles. Like, There needs to be one of those 12 primary witnesses for when the gospel breaks forth. Um, and again, notice in this chapter, you see... So in the day of Pentecost, we see the Spirit openly, visibly at work in people, people speaking in tongues. 
The next time we see that is with the Samaritans. Now we see it with these Gentiles in Caesarea. It's like each time the gospel is kind of breaking through a boundary, it's being authenticated by the visible work of the Spirit. Um, and an apostle is present to give witness and authentication to that. And Peter's got to go back, you know, we'll see in chapter 11, Peter's got to go back and, uh, you know, do some convincing for the other apostles that this is an okay thing. Um, and, you know, clearly it's being set up like this isn't the, the result of Peter's activity. This is the result of God's activity. So nobody can say, like, what, so when Peter reports, Peter's like, I'm just doing what God told me to do. And he had to tell me three times. <laughs> and then even then, I was greatly perplexed. And I had to ponder. <laughs> um, and then, you know, he has the aha moment of, oh, you know, uh, now I know. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Like, um, just like with the Samaritans, there's a big, um, there's a big gap or barrier. <laughs> that has to be overcome in people's thinking. Like people who they've, they've been used to segmenting off and thinking about as you know, unclean, unworthy. Wait, the gospel's for them too. Like here, like you know, Peter says, you know, you know um, how it's unlawful for me to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. You know, there's a huge gap here, which is if we think about the chapter as a whole, that's why God is acting openly all over it. Like, he's sending an, an angel and a vision to Cornelius. He's sending a, <laughs> um, or speaking in a trance to Peter um, and then sends the spirit to him again. <laughs> um, you know, and then... You know, he's directing every step. And then he breaks out the, the Holy Spirit in the middle of Peter's preaching. Before even Peter gets to the repent and believe part of his sermon, like, you know, they, they can't wait. <laughs> or God can't wait to get to that part. Like, it's all God's action. And it makes it clear that these Gentiles are to be treated as full brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, you know, that, that comment of Peter's at the end, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Like, you know, uh, and it, it's, it's done in a way that no man can claim credit for it. Peter can't say, yeah, I had the idea. Why don't we start, you know, a campaign in Caesarea and start reaching the Gentiles? No, <laughs> wasn't his idea. It was God's direction. Um, and then when Peter goes to the apostles in the next chapter, like he makes it clear to them. Um, and then when they heard all these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Like it's, it, you know, all this open activity of God in this chapter is putting God's enormous stamp of authority <laughs> on the rightness of these events. There can be no question 
that the gospel is meant for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews. Yeah, and let's talk about that. Like, you know, um, you know, this what is this vision of the unclean food items? You know, one, it seems like a weird like why don't he just tell him, you know, why don't you just show him people? <laughs> like, you know, he but he chooses to use food as his symbol, and he does it in a way like, you know, Peter doesn't quite get it. <laughs> You know, the text is pretty clear about that. Like, yeah, tell me that again. One more time. <laughs> you know, he has to receive this vision three times. And then, you know, Luke describes him as inwardly perplexed, <laughs> pondering. Like, you know, he's shown this, this vision um, of these, you know, as you say, trees, the food items. Um, but, you know, as things work out, he, he sees, clearly sees the message as meant that it, it refers not, not to food primarily, but to people. Um, and what, what don't call unclean what God has cleansed. You know, don't call common what God has made clean. Um, and it's, it's putting the emphasis on the work of God. It's not that those things um, weren't unclean. It's not that you know, Gentiles don't need to faith and repentance, but they're, you know, don't separate them in the way they've been separated in the past, because because of the work of Jesus Christ, those people can believe and be saved as well. Um, but yeah, what do we do with this, this vision? Is it, um, you know, is it food? Is it, is it Gentiles? Like some people say, well, it's, the whole food stuff is just metaphorically, so it's not anything about food, it's about people. Um, but as Teresa said, like you read it the first time, like it doesn't say, the vision itself doesn't say anything about people, it's all about food. And notice Peter's hungry, <laughs> like he's having a trance during lunchtime, <laughs> you know, the stomach's grumbling, and, and now God's showing him all this unclean food, um, and like, you know, <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, telling them to uh, kill and eat. Um, the kill there actually is sacrifice and eat, so you know, kind of emphasizing the, the spiritual dynamics of eating. Um, but but yeah, what do we do with this um, passage? <laughs> Absolutely, and and the church. This uh, you know, 
Uh, this is the story of much of the New Testament. Is like, hmm, what do we do with Gentiles? Do they have to be circumcised or not? Um, you know, as, as Matthew's been going through, you know, First Corinthians, like, can we eat that food that, you know, uh, you know <laughs> where, where, we don't know where it came from. Uh, you know, was it sacrificed to some idol somewhere? Like, yeah, it, there's a bigger conceptual, um, the, the barrier is more on the Jewish side than the Gentile side. But God is, I, I mean, I love the way God is, is, is working both sides. <laughs> like both people are being prepared. And it's, it's very similar to what we saw him do last week with Saul and Ananias. Like, you know, he's doing a work in Saul's heart, but Saul has such a reputation that he's got to do something, you know, on, on the Christian side as well. Like, because, like, Saul comes knocking on your door and say, hey, I'm a believer now. Like, really? <laughs> I mean, think about all the movies of, like, you know, like, you know, the, the guy who's been on the other side now comes in and, like, yeah, <laughs> we're going to put you in the back <laughs> where, you know, uh, you know, away from the fighting because we don't trust you. <laughs> and, you know, God has to do a, a work on, on both sides to, to, to reconcile the, the gap between these, these cultures. And the gap, uh, you're absolutely right, the gap is bigger on the Jewish side. Um, and and it's the church is going to wrestle with this. All right, you know, like next chapter, they'll come. Yet yeah, truly, God wants Gentiles to to be in the church. But what does that mean? Does that mean they have to become Jews first? Um, do they have to be circumcised? Um, do they have to you know obey food laws? Um, you know, so food isn't inconsequential to this divide. Like food is actually really socially very important. Like, what's this church going to look like if believers can't eat with one another? Because one side's like, yeah, that, sorry, we can't eat that stuff. Uh, we don't know where you came, you know, it's not kosher, sorry, we can't eat with you. Like, you know, it, so how do you, you know, like, you have to do away with some of these, these um, you know, barriers that have been created not just mentally, but socially and culturally. Like, like you know, how could you, you know, if if you view Gentiles as unclean, like you can't enter their house and associate with them, like how's that going to work if Gentiles become believers? Like you have to, you you not only have to let Gentiles in, but you also have to, you know, break down some of these cultural barriers that separate them. Um, and so food is a vital part of that process. Uh, oh, Frank I had his hand first. Okay, yeah, so Frank. Yeah, um, yeah. That it's it's a Roman from a Gentile city. Um, even though, like, yeah, he, he appreciates Judaism and has done good things for Jews. He's a Roman soldier. Um, 
you know, he's part of the oppressive overstructure <laughs> from a Jew's perspective. Like, you know, Roman rule is, is the oppression um, in their midst that they've been longing to be freed from. Um, and even the oppressors get the gospel. I mean, we saw that with Saul, like the, a persecutor, you know, the chief persecutor of the church can be saved. Um, a Roman centurion, um, part of the, this hated um, power structure that governs my daily life can be saved, right? Um, so, it, you know, again, like if that person can be saved, then all the Gentile, <laughs> you know, kind of lesser Gentiles, you know, well, they must be in too. <laughs> like if the, you know, the farthest reaches of one can be saved, then, you know, uh, it's like everybody else is eligible as well. Um, Jay and then Matthew. The doorbell rings. <laughs> yeah, and then the timing. Like, you know, uh, there's a lot of emphasis in this, this passage on the kind of precision. Like, Cornelius is praying at the ninth hour. Like, that's the hour... Uh, when um, sacrifices are usually being made in the temple. So, like, he's praying at that particular hour. Um, you know, it's lunchtime. It specifies the hour in which Peter gets the visions. And then it specifies, like, while he's pondering these things, like, at that very moment, at the gate, you know, these messengers from Cornelius show up. And, you know, like, he has this aha moment. Um, because... You know, he, he says it when he goes to Cornelius' house, like, you know how unlawful it is for me as a Jew to associate or visit with one anyone of another nation. He invited the messengers to spend the night with him. Like, it, the barrier is not broken when he shows up in Cornelius' house. The barrier is broken 
when Peter invites the messengers to spend the night, right? You know, he's associating with Gentiles at that moment. Um, you know, and you know, he, so he gets it. Like, like, like you say, it's like he, he's, he's pondering, understands, and as soon as these guys show up and give the message, he knows what God has been trying to say to him. Like, oh, it's not just food. <laughs> it's people. Um, and notice he uses the same words that the angel, or what God had said. What God has made clean, do not call common. Um, and then when Peter is talking to Cornelius, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Like he understands the symbol of food is, is there to break down this barrier between Gentile and Jew. Matthew, you want <laughs> yeah, that they too are part of this kingdom. Um, and earlier in the book, you know, we, we kind of like when, when they're going to, you know, we saw the apostles still going to the temple, like, you know, we were, we, we were kind of wrestling with that question, well, are they still Jews? Are they something else? Um, and we, you know, we've seen, all right, the Jewish authorities have turned against them. And so they, what started as primarily a movement within Judaism um, is now something that's gone beyond. Now it's going to, to, to Gentiles as well. Like, um, it's going to people that initially, like you say in chapter 1, they're like, it's for Israel, right? <laughs> it's for us. It's Jerusalem. Well, it's not just Jerusalem. It's Samaria, and it's Ethiopians. And now it's Roman centurions. Like, it, it's bigger than what they thought. This kingdom's bigger than what they initially thought it was. And it's big enough to keep to bring in people who they despise um, it's that big and think about uh, you know I think about as we kind of think of the application of this I think we sometimes fall into this trap of having people that like for national reasons or cultural reasons we consider them to be other or enemy and no the gospel is for them too the gospel is bigger than all those kinds of barriers and that people that, you know, our instant response is, well, let's shoot them or kill them. Well, no. Let's, like, I mean, if, if we had gone with that attitude, all right, let's take out Saul because Saul is the one who's persecuting the church. And if we topple him, then, but look what God did. Like, rather than execute Saul as an enemy of the church, no, the gospel's for Saul, too. Rather than throw off the Roman overlords, God can bring them into his kingdom. Like, 
you know, to, to trust in God that he can do a bigger work than the, and has a bigger kingdom than the one that we look for and expect. Yeah, Bill. Yeah, and you know, we and we, as Teresa asked earlier, you know, we do have that centurion. Um, we just studied it in Luke, where, you know, Jesus like centurion that has you know brings Jesus to come heal his ser sick servant, and you know, he's like, you don't have to come all the way to my house. Just you can just do it. And Jesus is like, truly, I I haven't found such faith in Israel. Like. So, but he is. He's an unusual centurion. But it, you know, you know, it's the importance of the person um, that's being brought in um, is demonstrating, you know, is 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 part of what an important action is taking place in this chapter. Like, this is the moment where Christianity it starts taking on a much different identity than Judaism. Because now it has to include people that Jews would never include. Um, you know, God is doing something bigger at, at, than just working in Israel um, as a, an ethnic nation. He's doing something. His Israel, this new Israel, is much, much bigger than one particular ethnic group. All right, we've like, you know, done half of what I wanted to do. <laughs> and it's 10.30. So um, we'll, we'll actually, what I'll do maybe next time is we'll look at um, Peter's sermon um, that he preaches and his engagement with Cornelius. And we'll look at that, we'll connect that with the first part of chapter 11, you know, when he, Peter goes back and has to report in Jerusalem. And so we'll kind of look at, again, how the church has to respond to this moment. But um, just to emphasize again, like clearly this is a you know, pivotal, pivotal moment in the life of the church. The gospel going beyond just Jews and you know, um, those you know, Gentiles who've converted to Judaism or those who are kind of related to Judaism in some way. No, it's for full-blown Gentiles as well, people who've never heard of the God of Israel um, are going to start being brought into to this Christian community. Um, and it's, yeah, this is, changes everything. Um, and, and it and causes a lot of continued discussion in the church because, again, it, it it's such a radical change that they struggle with it. And they struggle with the implications of it. Um, and continue to struggle with the implications of it, um, as we'll, you know, talk about, um, or, or, or as the words preached to us in, in worship, in Corinthians, like what does it, what does this mean, you know, in, as far as clean, cleanliness and uncleanliness, eating and not eating, like what does that look like in a Christian community that has both people who've been raised Jews and have all these 
you know, kosher laws and the sense of what's clean and unclean and people who've had none of that. Like, what does it mean to bring all those, those very different cultures into one community? And it creates problems. Um, but, you know, God and his kingdom is bigger than the problems of man. All right, let me close with prayer.